Good morning. Today's scripture comes from Exodus chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with the very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. This is the word of the Lord. So as we begin our message today, uh, let's start with a prayer. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find wisdom, and in your will discover your peace. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. So we've been going through the book of Exodus, and recently, more specifically, the ten plagues. This and today will be part three of the mini-series that we have on the Exodus series. And so we're nearing our end. We're past our halfway mark by today. And we see that God is answering Pharaoh when Pharaoh asked, Who is Yahweh that I should obey? And in the first four plagues, we see God destroy Egypt's pride, their nationality, their race that they had when he destroyed the Nile, their fertility, their obsession with sex with the frogs, the comfort that they have with gnats, the security that they have with their flies. And we see that God is challenging. You have a God? You say they're gods? I am God. And today we continue to now see in the fifth plague, God destroys all the livestock that are in the field, the domesticated animals that Egypt kept, the Egyptians kept. And we must realize and remember that the ancient, ancient Egyptians were pluralistic, pluralistic and had many gods. And they were known to deify animals as well. Bulls and cows were sacred. And um, archaeologists unearthed a temple in Memphis. And this temple, they had something called the Apis Bull. And they would take one bull at a time and feed it delicacies. They would give it massages. They would give that bull as many heifers as he wanted. And then when it died, they would mummify it. And so they would worship this bull. And in this particular temple that they found in Memphis, they had mummified 64 bulls. And it's not just cattle, the sheep, rams, horses, even cats had gods associated with them like Hathor, Sekhmet, Bastet. If you um, find this familiar, then a lot of um, fantasy games or movies or books and literature, they have these gods there. So that's why Hathor, Sekhmet, Bastet sound familiar. And um, they were all Egyptian gods. And especially these three that I mentioned, they were related to the feline kind of animals like cats and lions and things like that. And so according, this is an, according to an article produced by the Smithsonian, there are also a handful of other more eccentric objects on display in the collection. Most striking of all is likely a well-preserved cat mummy. 
ancient Egyptians um, mummified cats to give them as a sacrifice or offering to temples. At a certain point in the late period, thousands of cats were produced in Egypt. Indeed, these relics were so common that the British began exporting them to use as fertilizer. At one time, in one shipment, they had 180,000 of these mummified cats. And these are all signs of luxury. They didn't eat a lot of meat, perhaps, but they would use these things to show how much they had in abundance. And remember, the Egyptians looked down on disgust with those that took care of animals like the sheep and the shepherds. And we read that in the end of Genesis and also in Exodus. But perhaps some way, when we have luxury too, the caretakers of our luxury, we may not equate as equal as well. Um, our housekeepers or gardeners, perhaps we look at them not well with disdain, some of us. And in the sixth plague, where, this is where Moses and Aaron would take handfuls of soot from the furnace. And it's likely that if they were to take handfuls of soot, that this furnace may have been the furnace that made bricks for their slavery. And so when they threw up in the air, boils would break out into sores and infected all the Egyptians, so much so that even the magicians couldn't show up to Pharaoh's court. And mind you, this was their duty. It was their duty to show up and be an advisor to Pharaoh. That's why you are a magician or you are the counselor. You're supposed to be there, but it hurt them so much that they couldn't even show up to Pharaoh's court. And here is something worth noting. Um, afterwards is the first time we see in the text that we see that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. All this other time, one to five, it was about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. But here in, in the sixth plague, it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And that's really interesting. I want you to keep that in mind. And I'm going to just whip by these, this, uh, five, six, seven, eight, nine today. But in the seventh plague, hail and lightning fall from the sky, a sign that the Egyptians would have clearly seen as not just supernatural. For it never hails in Egypt. And so when they saw hail, it was not just supernatural. This was something incredibly powerful and supernatural. Moses would stretch out his staff toward heaven, and you would behold hail, lightning, thunder, fire come down from the sky. What you would think should contain blessings would now contain judgment. Anytime it rained in Egypt, that was amazing. Uh, their annual rainfall is about two inches a year. That's right, two inches. I think we had two inches yesterday. But their annual rainfall is two inches a year. And I remember when I was in Egypt, and I was thinking, oh, it's like one and a half to two inches. Wouldn't it be awesome if it just poured just as a sign of God's blessing? I was, I was a young man. And so I just started praying, uh, God, you know, send down rain and show the Egyptians that, uh, that you love them and you want them for yourself. And I was singing, there was a song, uh, Rain Down by Delirious, and we would just sing it, rain down. Anyway, we would just sing it all. And then I kid you not, and you could look up those dates in Egypt, 
it rained two inches while I was there that one day. And, and then the, because our, 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 our tour guide thought we were crazy because every time we were in the bus, we would sing rain down. But um, he was like, ah, it's not going to rain. But he was the one more excited. It's like, guys, it rained like two inches. And like, that's it. We wanted to pull. He's like, no, you don't understand. It rains two inches in a year, and it just did it in one day. But you have to understand, the things that come down from heaven was considered an incredible blessing, but when it hailed, you would have thought, this is weird. This is not just supernatural, but this is powerful. Lightning storms, hail. And then God shows Pharaoh why he's doing all this. And I want to take a quick break and read to you uh, chapter 9, verse 15 to 17. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. And then when Pharaoh couldn't take it anymore, he pled with Moses. In verse 27, verse 28 of uh, chapter 9, he goes, I, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right. Me and my people, we're in the wrong. Moses, plead with the Lord. And we've had enough of God's thunder and hail. I'll let you go. You shall stay here no longer. And um, Moses actually responds this way in verse 30. I'll stop all this, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. And sure enough, Pharaoh's heart was hardened again, and he did not let the people go. In the eighth plague, locusts had come, completely covered the land, and whatever was left from the hail that the hail didn't destroy, the locusts would destroy and eat everything else. And you see this kind of um, increase, a crescendo of what is happening. And we talked about it at the end of last week. But there is a deconstruction of creation. You have this one God, then you have all these two gods. And at this point, we're challenging like five, six, seven, but greater Egyptian gods in the e Egyptian's mind but in creation, it was bigger and bigger. Locusts were seen as a sign of a curse. And so when locusts came, that was bad news. That means your crops were done. But it wasn't just some locusts that would eat the crops. It, were, it, were, it was locusts that completely would cover the land. And whatever was left, they would eat it all, destroy it all. And Pharaoh here seems like he's, he's budging because he goes this time, I'll let the men go, but no one else. But he's not budging because it's still not in his brain or in his heart that it's not on Pharaoh's terms. This will be decided on God's terms. Locusts were seen by the Egyptians as a curse, and locusts came. Pharaoh quickly calls Moses to ask for forgiveness again. But when the locusts were taken away, it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. In the ninth plague, 
Darkness covers the land of Egypt. And it says this darkness is a thick, palatable darkness for three full days. And Pharaoh calls Moses, seeming relenting a little bit, but it's still on his terms. Everyone can go, even your little children, except your flock and herds. And this is not acceptable because it does not meet God's demands. If God is God, then what he says goes. And even though in this point, at this point, Ra the sun god, Horus, Osiris, Isis, they were all utterly defeated, Pharaoh still thought that he was a god. He had equal standing who could negotiate with God. You want this God? How about a little bit of this? You want this much? How about I give you this much? Will you be okay with this much? Because he thought he had equal standing who could negotiate. And you can think that all this pluralism, my faith in these gods must be respected, and, but this is what ultimately it shows. It shows that Pharaoh considered himself a god. And no matter how powerful someone is, no matter how powerful you think a god or some kind of establishment, organization, being, no matter how powerful, they are not in equal standing with Yahweh. His offer is, of course, rejected, and the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. And this time, there's something else that's added, and it seals his fate. By saying to Moses in chapter 10, verse 20 to 29, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. And so we have this kind of crescendo building up to what we know to be the 10th plague. But in this crescendo, we see God laying by the wayside all these things that the Egyptians held dear, that Pharaoh thought was, this is me, this is it. I get to stand on these things. Because I have this, I have confidence. I could talk the way I talk. I could walk the way I walk. I could negotiate with anybody. I'm the man, thought Pharaoh, or I am a god. But you see this crescendo, even though God would crush it, put it by the wayside, his heart would be hardened. And then you may ask, well, let's go back to chapter 9. Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Isn't that really interesting? Sometimes Pharaoh would harden his own heart, if you read it. And sometimes you would see here that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. That seems a little mean, right? Like, that's a little mean. Why, God, why would you do that? What if he was going to relent? What if uh, he would have been like, mm, my bad, God, you are God, and then I'll let your people go, but why'd you harden it? And so why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And number one, it is as we read, to show his power and glory. There is no God like Yahweh. And any time we think that we can stand up against God, we are the ones saying that I am Pharaoh. I am a God. I can negotiate with you. Your demands, they can be pushed a little bit. 
But God is showing who can withstand Yahweh's power. Number two is to show His mercy. Multiple times we are reminded that during these plagues, it's the land of Goshen where God's people lived that didn't get affected by the plagues. And scholars and archaeologists have been racking their brains how this happened. So maybe, you know, darkness was like a sandstorm that lasted three days. But how is it that the sandstorm just made its way around Goshen and only Goshen had sun? And when the locusts came and covered the whole land, and sure, the wind would come up and could bring locusts, but how is it that just the land of Goshen would not have locusts and all their crops were fine when thunder and lightning and hail came just the land of goshen would be set free and pharaoh would need to verify this because even this ancient man wasn't stupid he knew this is impossible there has to be some kind of maybe collateral damage. There must be some crops that were destroyed, some cattle that died by this plague. I get it. Frogs dead, gnats come, flies come because of the gnats, pestilence comes, right? Then the cattle dies. But why is Goshen just set free? So he sends people to look, make sure that you tell me what's going on in Goshen. And sure enough, when they come back, like Goshen wasn't touched. And so now you're wondering, even if God, who has power over the supernatural, could use natural ways to show his power, what is going on here with Goshen? And number two would be, God is now showing his mercy to his people, which is what we read today in our um, catechism reading. Pharaoh sends out scouts to check in them out, only to find out that the Egyptians were suffering from these plagues while God's people were not. Number three, we said number one, to show his power. Number two, to show his mercy. Number three is to show his wrath. When God says this, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth is to show God's wrath. Why did God have to harden Pharaoh's heart? And for that question to be answered, we should answer, what is a hardened heart? Well, a hardened heart is a heart that's disobedient toward God. They have pitted themselves against God and his church and his people. They're saying, this is where God is. This is where his people is. This is where his church is. I'm over here. And sometimes we could change language around. We can say things like, you know, I love God, but I hate his church. I hate this church or I hate that church. And I want to tell you, be very careful when you start thinking things like that, that's my question to you. Do you think that is a hardened heart or a softened heart? When we pit ourselves against God and the church that he establishes, the Goshen that he decides to protect, his people that he says, this is mine. And the hardened heart will receive God's wrath 
just as we see what's happening with Pharaoh. It's like, wait, you know, why do we have to talk about God's wrath? Don't you know? Don't you know, Pastor Eugene? It's God's goodness or kindness that leads people to repentance. Have you guys heard that? Have you guys heard the song too? So, okay, that's from Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Not the entire verse, but just a portion. And the goodness of God. And there was um, someone, I'm not going to say his name, but there was someone who wrote, the goodness of God leads to repentance. Preaching God's goodness brings more to repentance and faith than guilt. Sounds pretty good. There was a lot of hashtags there, so you almost want to like it. And another, another person, uh, they would say, listen, don't dangle people over the fires of hell. Listen, that doesn't draw people to God. They know what kind of life they live. They know how bad they lived. What you've got to do is talk about the goodness of God. Listen, it's the goodness of God that brings people to repentance. So these people are continually quoting Romans chapter 2, verse 4. So how about, as we learned, we take this verse and we put it in context. We're just going to read this. I'm just going to read not just the entirety of Romans chapter 2, verse 4. I'm just going to read Romans chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. Just the two, three verses around it. And this is what Romans chapter 2, verse 2 to 5 says. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man... You who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed." That, those are some hard words to put into song lyrics, to be honest. And we could maybe put up a portion of this. But to fully understand God's goodness and kindness and mercy, you cannot take away the wrath part. And John MacArthur wrote this, Forbearance or tolerance comes from anake, which means to hold back as of judgment. It was sometimes used to designate a truce which involves cessation of hostilities between warring parties. God's forbearance with mankind is a kind of temporary, divine truce he has graciously proclaimed. Patience translates like this, macrothumia, which is sometimes used of a powerful ruler who voluntarily withheld vengeance on an enemy or punishment of a criminal until the inevitable moment of judgment. God's kindness and forbearance and patience are extended to all mankind. It's not just Romans 2. Look at 9. In reference to the Exodus passage that we are studying, Paul writes in Romans 9, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Exodus chapter 33. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, 
but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. And you might be thinking, if God softens and hardens heart, why do I even have to even break a sweat? Why would I even feel guilty about anything? You might think that. Paul thought that too. So he writes in the very next verse, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul's a brilliant man. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels which of wrath prepare for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This may seem a little confusing. This is where we get the doctrine of limited atonement. Uh, I talked about total depravity and things like that, but we're talking here, there's a show of what we know to be limited atonement, which basically put is saying God will save who he will save. And so what's our response to Bible verses like this. What's our response? And it's not just New Testament. This is Old Testament. This is Exodus. This is Romans. This is 1 Corinthians. This is all over the text. And so what's our response to this verse? What is your heart like when you hear this? Is it fear and trembling with obedience? Or is it anger and dismissal? Who are you being like here? Should our response, shouldn't it be that of humility? Here's something I want to throw at you. How come everyone thinks they know how a church should be run? Where did you get your info? Did you see it growing up? And now you know it all? How are you any different from Pharaoh? In regards to Gentile salvation and the Jews being saved, Paul writes in chapter 11, they were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but fear. For God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Kindness and severity go together. You cannot be kind without severity. It's the same when a child comes up to you and they ask, why can't, Eugene, why just can't everyone get a billion dollars? And I would answer this if when a child asks me, why can't we just give a billion dollars to everybody? The answer that I would give them would be because the poor would still be poor. Someone tried to do the math 
and they couldn't figure it out because it was just it was just crazy. They did just in America. What if we gave one million dollars to every American? That would be amazing, right? Million dollars, woo, right? That kind of thing. Uh, one million dollars to every American would be around three hundred trillion dollars. And this economist said that would inflate the dollar into oblivion. If everyone got a million dollars, then you couldn't even buy a lollipop. That dollar would be worth nothing. See, in the fruitless season of Isaiah's time, he would write about the strange deeds of God. And I hope you're following me because this is not just easy stuff that I'm talking about. This is really deep and profound stuff that the text is teaching us that we need to be alert, not just in our minds, but in our spirits. In the fruitless season of Isaiah's time, he would write about the strange deeds of God, God's sovereign hardening of the people in Isaiah's day, his commissioning of Isaiah's apparent fruitless ministry. And this is a strange work, as Isaiah writes in chapter 28, that brings but what we see here is what D.A. Carson also writes, this strange work, the stage in God's strange work, brings God's ultimate redemptive purposes to pass. We see that this strange work that the Isaiah was seeing would eventually lead us to know what we know now of Christ's life, of his life here on this earth, that all this hardening and softening, God has a good purpose every single time in the Bible. So there remains still this big, inescapable question. Is your heart hardened or is it soft? In Mark 6, um, they saw, the disciples saw Jesus walking by the sea and they thought it was a ghost and they cried out, and they all saw him, and they were terrified. It, it writes in Mark 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 50, and Jesus goes, take heart, do not be afraid. And he got in the boat, and that storm ceased. All the storms ceased. And they were utterly astounded. But this is what it says in verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, the miracle of the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. What? What's going on here? You don't understand? You don't understand what's going on? Watch out. And Jesus himself says it a few chapters later. Are your hearts hardened? You're still worried about this bread in chapter 9. You don't understand. Watch out that your hearts are not hardened. Repent and turn from your sin. The sinful heart that thinks you know better than God. The sinful heart that thinks you are better than God himself. The sinful heart that thinks you are God. God is God. So do not become proud, but fear. In the NIV, it translates like this. Do not become arrogant, but tremble. In verse 25 of that chapter in Romans, it says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. So being hardened makes us not understand. But once you have a soft heart, once you have a humble heart, you see God revealing these mysteries to you. And words like limited atonement aren't scary anymore. We see that God 
is being glorified. The hardened heart, the heart that is set against God and His people, His church, does not and will not understand, but the obedient and humble heart will. How can this happen, though? How can we have this softened heart? How can I not be like Pharaoh? Because everything that I've read so far, when I'm reading this, I'm thinking, that's me. That's me. I'm Pharaoh. I'm the one that has a little bit of power and lets it get to his head. I'm the one that gets upset all the time, changes his mind when I go, oh, yeah, yeah, God, I'll stop sinning. Last time, last time I do this. And once things get better, guess what I do? How can this happen? Is it by doing more? Is it by believing more? By saying, oh, I know I'm bad. I'm so sorry. Don't you realize Pharaoh did all these things that I just said, and yet his heart was still hardened. This is the world we live in. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. In a world that says you are your own God, the prophet Jeremiah writes, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately seek, sick. Who can understand it? How can we repent? How can we truly, truly repent? Only by the Holy Spirit. Only by the Holy Spirit. He's the one that testifies of Christ's finished work. Even the darkness that the Israelites didn't experience, that all of Egypt did. Don't you see here? That's because when Jesus died on the cross, he experienced this palatable and thick darkness. Don't you get it? Why do you want me to yell at you as a pastor? Why do you want me to yell at you? It's like, oh, I wish Pastor Eugene would yell at me more so I can change. Don't you see that doesn't change you? It doesn't lead to lasting change. Stop wanting me to yell at you. Only by the Holy Spirit can you repent and ultimately change your heart. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, it says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It doesn't matter what happens and this is what I truly believe. We can show you the greatest miracle we can show you the greatest curse. And all these things, does the heart of man change? And we see that it doesn't. How does the heart, the heart that is so deceitful, change? Truly, truly change. Where I go, you know what? I don't know what it's like to run a church. I don't know what's best for my family. I don't know the best thing to give my kid, but I want to know. I want someone to teach me. I want someone to show me. 
I want someone to lead me. And there is someone who not only did that, but continues to do that for us now. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I realized this. As I was preparing today's message, man, I did not want to preach it. I didn't want to do this about the heart. It, it broke my heart. And the same thing with uh, Paul when he talks about his fellow Jews. He said, if I could just give up, give up my salvation for theirs, I would, because his heart broke for his people. But hear this, the good news is proclaimed. And whenever the good news is proclaimed, there are always two things, a heart that gets hardened and a heart that gets replaced with a new one. And I pray, and I pray that your heart is the heart that hears the good news of God and you will receive a new heart because that's the only way that we can change, the only way that we can be transformed by His Holy Spirit. We cannot do it on our own. You can come here and give me the top 10, 10 things that a person needs to do. That person will still have their heart hardened and set themselves against God. You can say these are the top 10 things that a church should have on your own accord. You should have this ministry, that ministry. You should have this kind of preaching, that kind of preaching, this kind of length. I kid you not. I kid you not, and I was telling the session this, but even my own family, we struggle with this because we all struggle with this. And I was on my mom's side last Sunday when we were celebrating lunch, and I'm not talking about it. They, they've come such a long way, and they, they went from we just want to have this relaxing gathering to now um, people praying before meals. So we've come a long way, and then one person asked me, how long are your sermons? And I said, 30 45 minutes, sometimes 48. And that guy, he was like, oh, yeah. I was like, 48, it should be 20. 20. And then uh, some other person is like, no, I'm in sales. If you don't get your point across in eight minutes, you fail. So eight minutes. And I was like, what is, what, what's going on here? So Esther and I are sitting there like, okay, well, it's time for us to listen. And then someone else goes, actually, I think my pastor's sermon, this person goes to church, my pastor's sermon is about uh, less than 30, like 28, and her husband's like, no, it's like 35. And then this is a serious discussion. We're having this discussion. And then my mom chimes in, it's like, yeah, yeah, it should be short. But I, I know this one pastor, he did it for two hours. And they're like, two hours? I'm like, yeah, two hours. And then they're like, they all had, they all had something to say. And then I said, well... My people aren't complaining too much, I think. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, okay. And then they just moved on. So when I was driving home with Esther, and I said, I said to her, that was weird, huh? And then she turned to me, and she's like, yeah, that was weird. What was going on there? After that whole discussion, it's like, I think it's this, I think it's this. And we had like eight people think this is what, how, this is not content. This is just length. Eight people go, this is what I think the length should be. At the end of it, they couldn't decide, like, eh. So who gets to decide how long the sermon should be? Shouldn't it be how the Spirit leads the church? Shouldn't it be when we read the Bible, if we're doing this passage, this passage, we're going to be faithful in expositing this passage, and if it takes this long, it takes this long. And that's where our hearts should be. 
I am ready to receive. It's not after eight minutes, I'm going to shut off because that salesperson, he said eight minutes, you should get your point across. I'm done on my phone. now. That kind of thing. Isn't that the wrong attitude? Isn't that the hardened heart? So even afterwards, even people one generation above me, so much wiser, they had nothing to say. And they just needed to move on. I didn't say a word. I didn't say, actually, I disagree with this point. We're about expositional. I didn't say any of that because they wouldn't have understood that. And I just said, you know what? We teach our people to listen to the word. And that was it. And boom, that's it. Nothing to say. Because what directs your attitude? What is your standard? How do you do it? How do you know what it is? What are the things that you should look for in the church? What are the things you should look for in your own life? If you set your own standards because of what you grew up with, because of some, what someone said, and I had, um, there was this man who invited me to his house, and one of my neighbors, and he's just trying to be nice, and it was late, I wanted to go home. I was like, maybe if Esther comes back home, I could just be like, oh, my wife's back, I gotta go. But she didn't come back till late that night, so I was a little bit resentful, but that's fine. Uh, Learn to live with that, but, and he, 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 he started talking, trying to be cordial, you know, welcome to the neighborhood thing. And he goes, what do you do? And this is what I don't share often. Uh, I don't like, it's not the first thing I share. In fact, if it was up to me, it would be the last thing I share. I said, oh, I'm actually a pastor. And boom, the floodgates open. He started sharing about how the church is this and that, how pastors are this and that. And then he would stop. He would be like, but you're okay because you're like an English pastor, so you're fine. And then the church is this and that. And there was a lot of hurt. But in this hurt, he had put up all these standards. Like, you should teach in your church morality, how to live. Don't you see? We can laugh and poke fun and be like, what does he know? He doesn't even go to church. But we're exactly the same way. We're like, why don't we go on more missions? Why don't we give more? Why don't we serve a little bit more? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? Why can't the pastor be like this? Why can't elders sit up in front? Why can't deacons be roaming the halls making sure that they do deacon work? Why don't we do this, this, that, that? And we become exactly like Pharaoh. Our hearts are so hard. And even in Samuel chapter 6, Samuel's pleading, will you harden your heart like you did, like Pharaoh hardened his heart? Won't you soften it? How can you do that? Only by the Holy Spirit. Pray if this is your heart and you get angry for I don't know what reason, but you get angry. And every time Pastor Jean opens his mouth, I get angry. That mouth. Like if that's what your heart is, think about it. Think about why. Is your heart getting hardened? Then there should be fear. I can't. I can't. I got to turn away, soften my heart, God. I don't want to be hardened. And it's so easy to get hardened, isn't it? Don't you relate with me on this? Isn't it so easy to get your heart hardened? Soften your heart before it's too late. How can you do that? You cannot do it on your own. Ask the Holy Spirit, give me a new heart and a new spirit. Put it in me so that I can walk faithfully in your statutes 
and obey you, God. Let's pray.